Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is the last song of David in the Psalter. It's, it's the beginning of six psalms, 145 through 150. Six psalms of praise which form sort of the crown or the final doxology for the whole book of psalms. In the words of one commentator, Psalm 145 is sumptuous and elegant, an earthly taste of the joys of heaven. And it's also, Psalm 145, it is also, and we saw this earlier with Psalm 111, it is also an acrostic psalm, A-C-R-O-S-T-I-C, acrostic, A-C-R-O-S-T-I-C. An acrostic psalm. And that means that each verse starts with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this is a device used by poets to communicate fullness or comprehensiveness. It's their way of saying, I'm going to cover the subject from A to Z. And thus... Every sort of sound, because you get all the letters, you essentially get every sort of sound the mouth can make. And here, every sort of sound the mouth can make is being used to praise the Lord in the poem. And so, in keeping with this desire to communicate this fullness, there's a whole river of speech actions that are referred to in the text And they're used to move us to uncover the greatness of God. You get words like exalt, praise, extol, commend, tell, speak, meditate, proclaim, pour forth, sing. Every single linguistic weapon in the arsenal of speaking creatures creatures who use letters to form words, is enlisted in this task. This psalm is an important psalm, and its importance can be seen in many ways. I'm just going to mention two of them. First, Psalm 145 is used in the lectionary, the system of readings we use, um, there's, there's, we have three readings, but there's also a fourth one, which is the psalm for every day and every Sunday. Psalm 145 is the psalm for four different Sundays in the year. Second, you'll note this. If you have a, 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 a decent English Bible, there's a superscription above the psalm, a sort of a little title. And this calls this psalm a psalm of praise of David. Now, surprisingly, this is the only psalm which is identified that way. And the word for praise is tahilah. T-E-H-I-L-L-A. T-E-H-I-L-L-A. This, then, is uniquely, Psalm 145 is uniquely the, the tahilah, the praise of David. And, And the ancient rabbis from the early Christian centuries in the Talmud, said this about Psalm 145. They said, Everyone 
who repeats the Tehillah of David three times a day may be sure that he is a child of the world to come. Now, we may disagree with their theology, but I think we'll agree with them in estimating the high importance of Psalm 145. I mean, imagine that. The ancient rabbi said, if you just said Psalm 145 three times a day, you could be assured that you're a child of the age to come. Because it's the Tehillah of David. So we're going to make five points. You'll notice they all start with G. Greatness, generations, goodness, glory, and generosity. There's an outline, if you're unaware, at the back inside page of the bulletin. First then, greatness. Psalm 145, verse 1, I will exalt you, my God, the King. God is exalted or made high in the estimation of all. One of the great things about this psalm and the calling of the church and your calling is that you are to make the high things high, and God is the highest thing. He's called my God the King. God is often called King in the Psalter. Sometimes he's called my King. This is only the second time, believe it or not, in the Psalter where God is called the King. And the psalm is very much an exposition of the kingship of God. It's both intimate, my God, and reverently regal, the king. So David is vowing, if you will. He's making a statement to his own will to exalt this one, to praise his name. And as we've seen, God's name is his reputation. It's his being. It's the fame of who he is and what his works have garnered for himself. And David says, I'm going to exalt this one forever and ever, which here means for my whole life. It's hyperbole, the way maybe two young people would say, we'll be together forever and ever. And thus, every day, the text goes on to say, he will praise God and extol his name forever and ever. So this, the kind of praise that David's setting out for himself, and the piling up of all these terms of speech points to this as well, this kind of praise cannot be done without wonder or without a certain amazement, a certain astonishment at the being of God himself. And David says he's going to engage in this labor, this joyful labor, because as verse 3 puts it, great is the Lord. Most worthy of praise or greatly to be praised. And so to extol or to exalt or to praise the name of God is to be astonished. Astonished at the limitless dimensions, the infinite grandeur of God's own being. The sheer magnitude of his achievements. Greatness is one of those words that we ascribe to God, I think, too quickly. 
It has to do with perceiving his infinite splendor, as the psalm makes clear. The Lord who is great, before whom his people are astonished at the limitlessness and the magnitude of his greatness, is to be praised as here with great vigor, with intelligence and intensity and labor and skill, because the praise must match the object. This is why the church has labored so much in praise and worship, in the creation of of music for worship, in the history of the church. The object is not only great, but the text says his greatness is such that no one can fathom it. God's greatness is an immense divine sea. It's unfathomable. Fathom being a C word. It's unsearchable. Paul tells us that the judgments of God are unsearchable. His ways are past finding out. No one has known his mind. No one has become God's counselor. No one gives him advice. So the the greatness of this one, the magnitude of this one, even as we are extolling it, exceeds us. As we've said before, we apprehend, but we cannot comprehend. We grasp, and in grasping we know that the greater portion of what we grasp eludes our grasp. We know, but we know in an infinite cloud of unknowing. You would never know this about the domesticated God of American Christianity who's everybody's pal, and who everybody seems to have figured out. But without a deep sense of this, the mysterious depths, the thickness, the ineffability of God is lost or thinned out, and he becomes domesticated and manageable. Because the greatness of God is unsearchable, it doesn't mean we don't search. It means we search vigorously, knowing the search will never end. It means the search is never exhausted, never contained, never controlled, never domesticated, never in your hands, never in your power. God is always subject, never object. So the psalm is going to try and use every human resource to start, to just start, to just begin to unpack the greatness of God. But it's just that. It's just a start. And so that brings us to the second point, the generations. I mean, when you think about this work of praising God, by its very nature, it's going to have to draw in the succeeding generations. No single life is up to the task. I mean, after David, all generations, even all eternity, will engage in fathoming the unfathomable, searching the unsearchable greatness of God. And we will never be bored. We will never be tired. Thus, verse 4 says, One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. There must be 
And indeed, there is a tradition, if you will, of praise and proclamation in the church. Centered on the being and acts of this God. We might even say that the church just is that tradition. That's just what the church is. It's the place where we receive from previous generations the commendation of God's works, the telling of his mighty acts. And it's the place where we commend and we tell and we do the same to the rising generation. It's a kind of building international symphony. And the theme of the symphony is the unsearchable greatness of God. And, you know, when you think of this tradition, this this is why individuals or communities which despise or which cut themselves off from this living tradition will thin the faith out and usually ends up with a distorted notion of God and his works. It's an interesting phenomenon, I think, that virtually all cults despise the previous generations and view themselves or their founder, perhaps a few generations ago, as restoring the pure truth that had been corrupted by everybody else, and this just restoring to our vision the face of the primitive apostolic church. Where you see that sort of thing, you should be suspicious. The generations before us have conquered ground. You cannot begin... Forget end, because you can never end. But you cannot begin to do this without receiving a rich patrimony and inheritance from the previous generations. Can't even start to praise God properly. It's received. And that reception is owned and assimilated and built on and then handed on to the next generation. And generation after generation, east and west, north and south, every tribe and tongue and language, they're just scratching at the, at, at the bottom of the unsearchable greatness of the triune God. So we have to receive. Because they've conquered ground. They've extolled. They've exalted. They've proclaimed. We have to build and hand it off to the future sons and daughters of the church. So verse 5 says, they speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. All three of those terms, the glorious splendor of your majesty, are about what it is for God to be king. Glorious, resplendent, majestic. This is the unapproachable light. This is the wellspring of the unsearchable glory. It can only be described in human terms by piling up words of luminosity, of impenetrable brilliance. This is the best that human beings can do as they stumble toward the glory of this one. And the terms pile up here. Now notice, before he talks of God's works, he talks of God's own being. The glorious splendor of your majesty. It has always been my contention that if if we are not passionate about the being of God, we will not be passionate about the works of God. So, the terms pile up here. Because we're in a realm, the realm of glory and greatness where it's impossible to exaggerate. 
This is one place where it is impossible to exaggerate. This is where human, linguistic, and artistic, and intellectual, and and emotional extravagance are called for, and they will always fall short. And the sum total of them from every creature across all generations will also fall short. So great, so unsearchable, so limitless is the magnitude of God's glory. So David sees himself in the midst of these generations. He says, I will meditate on your wonderful works. This splendor, this majesty is known in his might. His being is shown in his works. His wonder-inducing feats. And here the psalmist has in mind primarily things that are public because they're received from the past. You celebrate them and you hand them on to the next generation. Right? Meaning... His work of creation, his works of providence, his works in the covenant, his works in the history of Israel, the culmination of all his works in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Spirit, the formation, guidance, and defense of the church. Those are the central themes here. That's the axis along which God's glory is to be exalted. So, David's received these works. And he's going to muse on them, he says. I'm going to meditate on them. I'm going to pray and think about them. And these works are called awesome and great. They flow, verse 6 says, from God's power. And verse 7 speaks of celebrating his abundant goodness, singing aloud of his righteousness, which here means his covenant fidelity. Notice this power and goodness are wedded in God the King. His goodness is powerful, and his power is good. But I I want to draw attention to the word celebrate in verse 7. It's interesting. This word means to pour forth. To pour forth or to bubble over. There's an exuberance here. I said earlier, this, this sort of praise cannot be done without astonishment. It also cannot be done without exuberance. A failure in exuberance is not just a personality defect. Well, I don't like to bubble over. Well, the church is called a bubble over, to pour forth. There's a joy that's to characterize this handing on. Not just in our praise, but in our teaching. Right? There's a telling or a proclamation in which the church is summoned to a kind of exuberant gladness. We don't simply hand information on. We commend, we pour forth, we bubble over. The goodness is abundant and the story must be told lavishly. We cannot communicate about this God, who he is and what he's done as if he's waddling around in the pantheon of other ideologies. As if he belongs to this created order. We have to find ways to crack people's perceptions open by the power of the Spirit so they can see that this one is singular, unique, limitless, infinite, glorious. Not of the created order. The story must be told with exuberance. And so the third point is this goodness of God, this abundant goodness. 
Verse 8 is a citation from Exodus where God shows Moses his glory. Moses says, show me your glory, your radiance, your splendor, your infinite fullness, your unapproachable light, your majesty. And then God passes by and says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Calvin says this is as clear and satisfactory a description of God's nature as can be found anywhere. At the heart, then, of this majesty and this might, the heart of this glory lies this tender, self-giving goodness. And this goodness, verse 9 tells us, is poured out. It's poured out over the whole world. Animate and inanimate. The Lord is good to all. Even his enemies. The text says he has compassion on all that he's made. So that the whole created order is enveloped in God's goodness. I remember when I was younger, I used to struggle with exactly how I should conceive God in my mind. A struggle which... Probably uh, you may have had yourself, and it's a a struggle which one never fully overcomes, I think, as a creature. But one thing that helped me was this, having some knowledge of the infinite expanding universe. I think of the universe in its infinite splendor, far-flung, expanding, right? And then you think of the being of God, and sometimes you have a problem. You should think of the being of God as so grand that the universe is almost an you know, an imperceptible speck. Right? There has to be, you have to sort of rearrange the proportions. The stuff we take in with our eyes seems big to us. And it seems immense. Right? But the goodness of God and the compassion of God is sprawled out over and around and under galaxies with great ease. That's the other thing about God. None of this is tiring him out. He is so great so unsearchable in the magnitude of his goodness. He cannot be thwarted. And his goodness envelops the whole order of things. And so, that brings us to the fourth point, which is glory. You may think, haven't we talked about glory already? It's kind of hard to separate these points. Verse verse 10, all your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. So it moves like this, from David to the generations, then out to all God's works. Another thing to note about this psalm, besides the alphabetical point I made earlier, is that the word all is used 15 times in the psalm. And that's, that's another linguistic attempt to get at the greatness that's in view. All your works, all your people, all creation, all things, all generations... Here it's the faithful people who are central. They can tell. You have the unique privilege, unlike the the mute creation, of speaking about the glory of God's kingdom and his might, the text says. Notice the three things that are coupled together here. Glory, kingdom, and might. They echo the themes that are at the heart of the church's prayer life. This is why Psalm 145 has had such an honored place. 
When you read it carefully, you realize there are things here that are at the very heart of the church's prayer life. Summarized in the Lord's Prayer, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glorious splendor of God's majesty was mentioned earlier. Now it's the glorious splendor of his kingdom. The first refers to the glory of the king, to God's being. The second, to the glory of his kingdom, to God's works. The two things always belong together. Beloved, there is nothing else but this. There are only two things in existence. God and the works of God. The glorious God and his glorious works. There are no other things. This is the sum totality of all that is, and that's why this is an unsearchable field of play. Then the kingdom here is an everlasting kingdom, David says, a dominion which endures through all generation. Again, this is the kingdom of God is a concrete kingdom. These words were found on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar in, in the book of Daniel. And, and they remind us that all fleeting empires are going to fail. They're going to fall, and they're going to be conquered by this everlasting, indestructible kingdom. And this means for us that the kingdom of God, as it was for our Lord Jesus' own ministry, the kingdom of God should be a central theme of our speech, of our confession, of our singing, of our telling. Right? God's all the mighty, glorious works of God, all of the goodness and tenderness with which he pours out onto the created order, with, with which he stoops down to you. It's for the sake of building, establishing this everlasting kingdom. Again, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's helpful if you substitute the word civilization for kingdom and speak of the civilization of God, or the city of God, the polis, the political order of God, the empire of Christ. That helps to take the idea of the kingdom away from something sort of ethereal floating up here. Christ is creating an order. And so finally, generosity. This is the last point. Verse 14, in his kindness, God upholds all who fall. He lifts up all who are bowed down. So this this is royal condescension. It's regal tenderness. It's stooping for the weak and needy. And this is a stooping, beloved, which culminates in the incarnation. It culminates when the God, the King, becomes man in our alienated, lost existence. This generosity extends even to the mundane things, to our daily bread. Verses 15 and 16 have been used throughout history, and I think rightly, as a wonderful table prayer. Grace, if you will, before meals. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Even the animal kingdom tastes of the generosity of God's open hand. God helps the needy, the text says. He gives food to all. And he saves and protects his people. Verse 18 through 20. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, faithful in all he does. 
These terms speak of God's fidelity to the covenant. This is why the covenant is one of the great works to be known and celebrated and sung. Because righteousness and faithfulness are righteousness, loyalty, nearness, upholding of this covenant bond of God's promises. He's near to his people who call upon him in truth. The whole psalm, the whole Tehillah of David is an exercise in calling upon God in truth. He fulfills the desires, the text says, the rightly ordered desires, the desires of this text. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry. He saves them. And finally, the the voice of David in the Psalter ends with verse 21. Verse 21 is the last thing we have from David in the Psalter. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. So he makes these themes wholly his own. They belong to the generations to be sure. They're indeed as wide as the whole creation. In fact, he moves from that. Notice, I, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. And then he says this, let every creature praise his holy name. So the praise of David of the generations, of the whole creation, will be as unfading as eternity. And thus he ends with, bless his holy name, let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So this psalm cannot be justly expounded in one sermon. I urge you to spend time with it. It will repay your attention. It will lift your soul. It will order you to the high nobility of our God. It's difficult to believe that Jesus himself hadn't deeply assimilated it when he left an example and a pattern for prayer. Think of this. You have here, my God, the King, intimate and transcendent. That answers to our Father in heaven. The extolling and the exalting of the glorious holy name here is answered by the phrase, hallowed be thy name. The celebration of the kingdom echoed in this text is, is in our Lord's, finds its manifestation in our Lord's, thy kingdom come. The, The goodness of this text, right, which stoops down and cares for the created order is prayed for when we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right here in Psalm 145, the Lord opens His hand to provide food for all. And in the Lord's Prayer, we pray for our daily bread. Here, we're told that the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, rich in love, and thus we can pray for the forgiveness of our sins. And because the Lord is near to those who call upon Him in truth, because He will save and He will protect us, we pray not to be led into temptation, but to be delivered from evil. And like the psalm, which speaks of this glory, this powerful kingdom, we pray, Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory. And because this psalm, 
of this unsearchably great God, it goes on through all generations and into eternity. The Lord's Prayer, like the psalm, ends with now and forever. Amen and amen.